0: Welcome to the Everything Apartments Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Christopher. I'm president of WSC Realty Advisors here in Long Beach, where I've been an apartment broker, owner, and property manager for the last 15 years. This podcast covers all aspects of multifamily investments from buying and financing properties to -to day-to-day operations and management, and also into reinvestment strategies to help you increase your net worth, We've already had some great guests on the show and from time to time we'll take a turn and do kind of a 101 or a kind of technical side of the business in a short format today we're going to talk about apartment sales metrics and sales metrics range from very simple to a little more complicated usually we find buyers or owners they kind of gravitate toward their favorite one um, they're very easy to calculate what we'll do here today is drill down on them a little bit and try to discover some of the nuances that occur within them when you're comparing buildings, when you're looking at something to buy, and just kind of sizing up the transaction based on these metrics. Some of you may know these metrics intimately already. Uh, Maybe some of you don't. We can kind of fill in the blanks and let's, uh, let's dive right in. Now, before we get into the actual sales metrics, let's ask a simple question. What drives almost all these metrics when you own or you're going to buy a rental property. Maybe may be a little bit of a kind of a random question, but that's rents, right? In an investment property, it's all about rents. And what we can drive from that is rents don't scale in different unit sizes for apartments and probably for retail and commercial as well, but they don't scale on the exact same rent per square foot. So let's talk about that for just a second. Rent per square foot is nothing more than taking the monthly rent you receive and dividing it by the rentable square foot of the building. Uh, rentable square foot is pretty easy to attain on a property title profile. So if you have a building that is 10,000 square feet and you're taking in 20,000 a month, that would easily divide into $2 per square foot. But let's point out an, uh, a little nuance here. Let's say the typical studio unit here in Long Beach and probably in a lot of metropolitan areas around Southern California would rent for around $1,200. And a lot of those are around 350 to 380 square feet. So if you did the division on the 1,200 by say 350, you're about $3.33 a square foot. Now let's go to the other end of uh, the spectrum here in like central Long Beach. If you had a two bedroom, two bath, There's a lot of those that were built in the 80s and those range in size from say 850 to 950 square feet. So let's just say 900 square foot average. That unit would rent for about $1,800. So doing doing the division on that, that would equate to $2 per square foot. So what I want you to think about is a downward sloping curve based on unit size going across the bottom and rent per square foot going up the, the vertical part of the graph. And the smaller units say $3, dollars three fifty dollars a square foot. And as that unit increases in size, the cost or the, excuse me, the rent per square foot per month is going to drop. Now, it, does, it will hit a bottom amount, basically saying no matter how big the unit is, it's not going to keep decreasing. It's going to flatten out at some point. But what I'm trying to point out here is that you have radically different rent per square foot numbers on a 360 square foot studio up to a 900 square foot two bedroom, two bath. Now, obviously, the two bedroom, two bath is going to rent for more total dollars. But if you dissect it down into the rentable square foot and use that per month figure, you're going to see a much higher number on the smaller unit than the larger. And that will take us into the price per square foot that you pay for the build. I have a link to a one-page demonstration of this. We're talking about two buildings, and they're basically four or five doors down one another here in central Long Beach. One of them is an eight-unit courtyard with all studios built in the 1920s. You see a lot of these around town where you'd walk into an exterior courtyard through a gate or a door, and then you've got Rows of studios on both sides of you, either leading to a back gate or just kind of dead ending. Okay, there's lots and lots of these around built in that time frame. And then five doors down from it is a three story, eight unit with two bedrooms and two baths in each, parking all over on the bottom floor, et cetera. So, what I was pointing out and how it ties into that rent per square foot number is you, you would see on this property, uh, the, that being the 20s property it would sell for somewhere in the way of about $450 a square foot. And the larger building would be somewhere down in the $360 a foot range. So going back to the rent per square foot discussion we just had, that's the the complete reason for that. The smaller units are always going to sell at a much higher per foot number than the bigger units. And sometimes it takes remembering that because somebody might look at one of the older studio buildings and say, Heck no, I'm not interested in buying a building at $450 a square foot when I can get a newer one down the street for $360 a foot. But keep in mind, you're getting much higher rent per square foot on the smaller building. So cost per square foot or price per square foot is, again, the lowest common denominator in any any type of commercial real estate, including apartments. It's very easy to calculate. It's very easy to kind of compare those numbers between two buildings. But the caveat is the two buildings need to be around the same size and probably around the same age as well. Otherwise, you're just going to get a reading that's going to throw you off like this one. Now, let's touch very briefly on price per unit because it is very linear. And there, there isn't a whole lot going on here that would surprise you. Basically, you're taking the sale price divided by the number of units you're coming up with a number. For example, on the 1920s, eight studio units that would that sold for a price per unit of $171,800 and change. The cost per unit on the larger two-bedroom, two-bath built in the 80s is around 312,000 per unit. So there would never be a day that a smaller unit would sell at a higher price per unit than a larger unit. I mean, I guess you could argue that one could be on the beach and the other could be in a tougher area, but we're using the same neighborhood five doors down, much more linear because why? You're collecting a heck of a lot more dollars on the larger unit. You're achieving $1,800 for that unit, whereas the other one is only getting 1,200, Thus, your your cost per unit is always going to be very linear toward the total dollars of rent. Now, let's flip the page into gross rent multiplier, abbreviated as GRM. It's a favorite one of apartment investors. But one thing that I learned traveling into some of the out-of-state markets is we really only use it here in Southern California. So it's kind of an interesting dynamic that uh, you go into Reno or Phoenix or some of these other places and you say GRM and they say, what? So it, it's, it's very much a locally used uh, metric. And what you're doing with that is you're taking the sale price divided by the gross annual income of the property. And that's expressed in a two decimal number. And what you can do with that number is it, it literally equates to the number of times the gross income that a buyer is willing to pay for that property. That's, that's really all it is. And what happens with GRM and some of the other metrics, actually all of them, the tide of the market is going to elevate or decrease all these metrics more than really anything you can do to the building in the way of raising rents or lowering expenses. So the market itself drives where these metrics will land. I can show you a graph that will show you the GRM over the last seven or eight years. And you'll definitely see that each year that GRM is higher because buyers are willing to pay more for the same income or close to it, right? There's probably been rent increases built in. But again, the market is going to drive the the pricing more than if you raise the rents by 20%. That's also a help. The market is much more swift at at increasing or decreasing these metrics based on what your, your current income is. Also, an interesting note is that GRM, as we just discussed is purely driven off top line revenue rents and income basically in total only so you haven't taken any account into expenses yet you're looking at the top line revenue number as a factor of the sale price the other thing about GRM is that it it there's a lot that it doesn't tell you for example if you looked at a listing and it's got an 18 GRM on it but all the comparable sales around it have 14 What does that tell you? Most people might say, oh, that thing's overpriced. And that may be true. But skinning back the onion, you may find that there's undermarket rents in that building, which is basically causing it to be listed at a sale price. That's a much higher factor of the income it's receiving. And you may find a good bargain on that property, even though the GRM looks horrendous when it's presented to you. So it's based on looking at that rent roll and saying, hey, if it's 17 times, the market says it's 14, and the rents are at market, well, it it really is just overpriced at that point. But if you look at the rent roll and you say, wow, there's 25% upside in the rents, that's why the GRM is so far elevated. And you might find that the cost per square foot of the comparables vis-a-vis this offering may be in line. Let's take the next step now. And and this is getting into more sophisticated investor level cap rate. That's short for capitalization rate. And really what I want you to think about that is, is simply it's the net income. So gross rents, less vacancy, less expenses. What you could spend if you bought the building for cash. That's literally what it is. If you bought the building for cash, because we're not taking any account into any debt service that you have. So you bought the building for cash you paid all your bills, and at the end of the year, you had X dollars to spend. You're going to divide that number into your sale price to get your cap rate expressed in a two-decimal figure percentage. So in this example we have here, you may find uh, the cap rate that averages in Long Beach right now is hovering right around five in your nicer neighborhoods, let's say near the water or something very special. You're still down in the low fours, if not maybe even threes, you drive into a little tougher neighborhood where the management's a little tougher. You're, you're five, five and a half. So this is simply a metric that takes into account your net income. So GRM started with top line revenue only. In cap rate, we're now adding into the equation the expense factors. And we're coming up with our net income. Now, there's a lot of room for error or for some some haziness with broker packages and what everybody's telling you between the gross income and what the expenses are. I mean, far be it from a broker to make his listing look a little better and not maybe have all the expenses in there or go off pro forma rents. I found that with a lot of offering packages in other markets is they don't even tell you the current rents. You're like, wait. I need to know what the current rents are because that's what I'm going to get a loan on. But they only tell you about Proforma. Now, I guess Proforma in out-of-state markets is a little easier to achieve. They don't have rent control in places like Arizona and Nevada, so that you really could do a swift value add and replace with market rate tenants. Where pro forma here in California gets a little dicey because you've got a lot of you know, you've got rent control statewide, maybe even heavier in certain cities. You've got eviction moratoriums and relocation fees. So, taking your rents to market here in California is a little tougher equation than we used to have before rent control came in. So, paying attention to how the cap rate is driven. And what you're going to do with me is when I write an offer with you is we're going to take apart that broker package. We're going to study all the expenses. We're going to see if they actually line up. They usually are presented a little lower than normal. Go figure. But what we will do is we'll arrive at our own cap rate to decide if that's a building that's right for you. If you listen to Darren Mainstein in the last episode of the podcast, he's a syndicator, And what those guys do is buy, stabilize, and sell buildings. Let's say in a five-year period was his model, but it could be sooner. And what those guys do, and the institutional guys and gals do the same thing, is they use an IRR worksheet. That's internal rate of return. And that uses a discounted cash flow model. And I don't want you to be scared away by that because... Many of us may not really need to use that if we're not planning to exit the asset in five years or some defined time frame. It may be a little overboard for us if we're buying to hold indefinitely. But just so you get an idea of how they think about it is they put everything down on their five or seven year hold period in a a spreadsheet. They're going to achieve what we're talking about with the cap rate, but they're going to put some assumptions in there around appreciation and what they can expect in total return, including market appreciation, depreciation, everything, again, that we may not necessarily need to think about if we're buying to hold long term. But they want to see at the end of that five-year run, what is the internal rate of return, and I believe Darren said he was shooting for something around 14%. Now, that's not cap rate. Cap rate is only the return on the building if you bought it for cash. But they're adding more modules to it to get even, a, let's say, a, a closer estimate on what they can experience year to year. So, again, IRR is probably something for most of us that we don't have to dig terribly deep into. But it's not a bad idea to understand what it is and what it's supposed to tell us so that you could if you wanted to, and it might not be a bad idea just to try it out once. Uh, I've got a couple of those spreadsheet models here in my office that we could talk about the nuances between taking cap rate into an IRR model. So you've got all these metrics that you can study and compare to other comparables, other buildings that you might buy and try to call out the best one that's there for you. What we forget to talk about is no matter if you're you're a residential home buyer or you're buying some apartments or even retail or industrial commercial property, there's always emotion involved in basically every decision we make, right? I forgot who told me this, but it makes a lot of good sense. We study decisions rationally, but a lot of times we end up making them emotionally. And what I mean by that is you could see a building that may not have the metrics of another one that's available. You just like it though. You like it. It just makes you feel good the value add side's there for you to achieve those metrics. So if you, if let's say you could buy a building and maybe have a couple of vacancies or, or have that happen shortly after you close the building, you're going to have the chance to increase your metrics in a favorable manner and run that building at a better cap rate than you bought it at. And that's really the goal. In the last episode, Darren said, they like to stabilize a building at about 50 basis points higher on the cap rate than they'll sell it at. And what we kind of arrived at together is, hey, that spread in your cap rate where let's say you can run it at a six and a half cap through all your work, you increase the rents and somehow figured out a way to decrease expenses. Let's say you can run it at a six and a half cap, then you can sell it at a six cap or wherever the market is. That really is your profit in the deal. As you can see, there's a lot of value in these apartment sales metrics, what they can tell you, how to size up a deal, how to compare deals from one to the next, or maybe where you're at with the property you have now. If you're more curious about some of this stuff in your own scenario, I welcome an inquiry. Send me an email to everythingapartments at gmail.com and we can kind of talk more specifically about them. We'll have another great episode coming up shortly, and I really appreciate you joining us here today on Everything Apartments Podcast.